study over the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, currently the series is called Address the Mess, uh, and we are in 1st Corinthians 7. Hopefully today we'll finish up 1st Corinthians 7, but I'm going to give you a, a brief recap that I can possibly give. But 1st uh, and 2nd Corinthians were two letters that were written to a, a church that Paul helped establish uh, in a city called Corinth uh, that was heavily influenced by the Greek Empire. Uh, Paul set this church up like four or five years before he wrote these letters. And when he set this church up, he spent 14 or 15 months of training them and teaching and trying to get them ready uh, to be a successful church. Uh, but then after he left, despite his best efforts, they still lost their way and became really carnal. I mean, they became immature and they were really immoral and self-righteous and religious. They were just a mess. Uh, so Paul wrote them these letters hoping to maybe, you know, discipline them a little bit and try to get their leaders back in the now, for the past few weeks, Paul's been discussing some of the most uncomfortable topics out there. Uh, we were talking about sexual immorality uh, a lot. We talked about intimacy and marriage. Uh, we talked about uh, marriage and divorce. Just about anything you can think of that, that's uncomfortable to talk about, we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And it might make you feel good to know that he's going to continue doing that today, right? Now, <laughs> he spoke with widows last week and single and gave them some advice. Um, but... This week we're going to jump into uh, kind of a different area, kind of the same, but a little bit different, because today he's going to explain how they should consider their present circumstances before they make any, like, relationship decisions or binding decisions. So I titled the message, Consider the Circumstances, because that's basically exactly what he's asking to do. Because I think as believers, we often fail to consider all the consequences of our lives before we actually step in and, and, and make a move. I think sometimes we jump into circumstances that may not actually be uh, fruitful for our, our faith, but we jump in without thinking and praying. I think this is kind of what we kind of think we can do. Okay, you're caught up. Let's jump in. First Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 25. He says, now regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in His mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted, and I will share it with you. Because of this present crisis in the land of Florida, but because of this present crisis, I think it is best to remain as you are. If you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. Okay, so in verse 25, Paul once again told his readers that he has a message that, you know, for this group he's addressing that, that's not in the law. And we know that because he said, I have no command. He said, I have no command. He meant he had no command from the law. Okay, it's really, really important to understand that. And we discussed that last week that everything in the Bible is inspired. There's no such thing as a, as a writer saying, well, what I'm about to say, you can take it or leave it. It might be my opinion, it might not. Now, that's, that's not going to happen. All he meant when he said, you don't have a command, was they were familiar with the commands of the law. He was saying, just in case you're going to run home and check the, you know, check the law of Moses, what I'm about to tell you is not in there because I'm about to reveal some direct revelation from God, revelation that God personally entrusted me with. That's what he meant by the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted. He's saying that, you know, God has found me trustworthy to take this direct revelation and reveal it to you and teach it to you. So listen to what I have to say is basically uh, what he was saying. And it makes sense because everybody knew, I don't think anybody really questioned whether he got direct revelation. Because everybody knew that if there was one person that God knew would not be afraid to share anything he revealed to him, it was Paul. Because Paul boldly and unapologetically was committed to teaching the truth no matter what the consequences. And if you read throughout the stories of his life, I mean, this man was imprisoned, was beaten, almost killed, and yet, as soon as he'd get out, as soon as he'd get paroled, he'd go out and find some place to a stump to jump on and start preaching again, which is who he was. So, that's what he was saying there. So, I want to make sure he covered that. 
for some reason, I've had a lot of people asking me, well, Paul keeps bringing up his opinion. Do we have to listen to that? Listen, if it's in those 66 books, it's not opinion. Okay? So anyway. Now, notice how Paul addresses young women who are not yet married. How many people's Bibles or translations say virgins with? Anybody? Okay, some of you guys. I chose the New Living Translation today. Uh, the New American Standard is the most literally accurate word for word, but it's kind of wooden. It means that it's, uh, if they're more concerned with uh, literal accuracy word for word than maybe flow of the, of the text and understandability of the text. Whereas the New Living Translation is written a little bit easier. To, they actually had it, when they decided to make it, they wanted it to be written on an 8th grade reading comprehension level so that anybody who read it could enjoy it and not have to overthink it. But I like how they took it a step farther. I'll explain the difference here. It's going to let you know. That's why I'm using the New Living. But some versions do say virgin here instead of the you know, young women who are not yet married. And the word virgin is from the Greek word of Parthenos. And it means unmarried person. That's what it means here. It means unmarried person. It doesn't mean what you think it means. Well, yeah, I guess it kind of does. I'll explain that. See, God has always forbidden sex outside of marriage. He always has. And God's people, especially at that time, knew that. I mean, they didn't have people pushing them to do that from social media everywhere they turned, you know. But everybody knew that that was what God demanded of his people. So, at that time, the words unmarried and virgin were almost synonymous. Because they just expected, if you weren't married, that you would be a virgin. That's just what they expected. Right? Now, the world that we live in almost shames people who remain a virgin until marriage. You ever notice that? I mean, they almost shame them. I mean, and that's just further evidence that we know who's controlling the world and the world's way of thinking. So, back to the text. Now, that's a whole other sermon I could preach on just that. But, so what was this new revelation from God that Paul had that he wanted to share with these, uh, these young women who were not yet married? And that, what that vision was was that the Corinthians were to remain as they were when God saved them. Remain as they were when God saved them. Basically, unmarried people, stay unmarried. Just stay single. If you're capable of doing so, stay single. And married people don't seek to be separated. See, one of the things he was dealing with there was people were saying things like, well, my spouse isn't a believer and I think they're hindering me. Paul, should I just move on and leave her? He said, no, that's not what you should do. And people were saying, well, you know, I want to be married and, and I, this pre-arranged marriage was made to me a long time ago but she was a pagan. Um, should I go ahead and marry her? He said, no, listen, if, if it's not going to enhance your faith, don't do it. That's basically what he was saying here. That's what he was dealing with at that time, right? Now, the reason Paul did this, he kind of explains it. Remember when I said underscore because of this present crisis? The reason he was really kind of pushing this, it wasn't that Paul was a marriage hater, which he's been accused of. It wasn't that Paul, you know, didn't like women, which he's been accused of, okay? But he said because of this present crisis. And he said that because he was anticipating that the persecution the church was facing was only going to get worse. He was like, listen, I don't see this getting better anywhere down the line. And time would reveal that the Apostle Paul was right about that because the persecution did get worse. And because he believed that, he feared the strain that that persecution might put on a new family. Right? He didn't want a family starting off with that kind of strain and that kind of stress in their lives, always running for their lives and worried about being imprisoned and beaten. And he worried about that. And that's why he was bringing these things up. I mean, it was going to be tough enough to survive and care for yourself when you got the Roman government and you got the Jews after you and pagan nations after you. All these people wanted them dead. It's like, it's hard enough trying to stay alive and stay safe yourself. So before you marry, think that through. Because if you're capable of not being married, 
then maybe you should go that route because it just makes it more stressful for you when people are constantly chasing after you and your new family. And sometimes, I know you guys probably felt this one coming, but I sometimes feel the same way kind of about our present circumstances. I kind of feel the same way. Has anybody ever thought that it's, you're excited to see babies come into the world, but you're also a little scared for them? Anybody else have that thought? I mean, I am. I'm, you know, I'm, I sound like the old man here, and at 32, I shouldn't feel that way. That's a lie. But, uh, you know, I do sound like an old man here, but it really worries me. Our circumstances right now really, really worry me because when I see how immoral and, and godless the world we live in has become, it just, it depresses me kind of. It, it kind of puts me back on my heel. Like Paul, I'm starting to see the benefits of maybe staying single and focusing on God, right? But, you know, I honestly think that marriage and the family and family values and our faith is constantly under attack. And I know that all you new families starting and all you new couples starting off, if you're serious about your faith, you're going to be persecuted. I mean, the world is not in our corner. We are always under attack. The family's under attack. Marriage is under attack. Family values especially uh, is under attack. I can't even watch sitcoms anymore. Anybody with me on that? You start watching stuff and you're going, what? What? What are you doing on a sitcom? It's just hard for me to even watch that anymore. And so I can kind of see the benefit because it's tough right now. It would be tough raising a family, right? Now, so if someone was able, remember this, if someone was able to remain unmarried and, and dedicated to God, it would probably be beneficial to them and to the church body, the body of Christ as a whole, having more people solely dedicated on Christ trying to win people. So I get what he was saying. But again, God knows that not everyone can do that. Not everyone is gifted to be able to control their desires and, and stay, you know, celibate and single their whole life. Because if you're going to stay single, you got to stay celibate. That's the other part of that equation. Right? And God knows that everybody can't do that. And he knows who can and who can't. And no one is supposed to judge someone for getting, for getting married. I mean, getting married is a beautiful thing if it's, if it's you know, done correctly. Um, if somebody knows how to do that correctly, let me know. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't like this. Uh, I'm in trouble. Anyway, um, but there's nothing wrong with it. God knows who can and who can't, right? But in verse 28, Paul also reminds them that they couldn't remain single. Marriage isn't a sin. And I think this is his way of saying, listen, I'm not a married table. You don't understand what I'm saying? I'm not hating on marriage here. I'm worried about the new marriages. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 28. He says, but if you do get married, it is not a sin. And if any, and if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles, and I am trying to spare you those problems. Okay, so basically, he's saying, listen, I'm not condemning marriage. It's a beautiful thing. Most people believe, and I do too, that he was married at one time, and he was with us. But he's looking around seeing the marriage. And he's going, I'm not going to sin if you know. The virgin's not going to sin, or the young women who are not married are not going to sin. Uh, the young men are not going to sin. It's not going to be, none of that's wrong. But I see the trouble coming, and I'm just trying to spare you. I want to make sure that you know that the two of you can do this before you get married. Make sure that that person you're about to bond yourself to, make sure that they are going to make you stronger in God. And we'll talk about that here in a minute, because... He was trying to spare them, and he meant spare them the turmoil that their families, I mean, were going to face. I'd love to say might face, but they were going to face it. History shows that they did. And it's kind of like today, uh, the believers in China and Sudan have a totally different set of circumstances than we have. Right? There are people in Sudan that the government will pull out in the street and murder because they're believers. That can happen to you. 
Okay, and it's not just Sudan. There's problems in India right now. There's problems all over the place. People are being persecuted, and persecution like we've never seen. I mean, some places are losing their property and their right to own things because they refuse to convert to whatever pagan religion they have in that country. It's not easy for people everywhere, and Paul knew it was going to be like this for them, and he was really trying to spare them that, but, you know, there again, they had to be able to do it. Now, again, in our time, it's hard it's hard knowing the world and even the schools are constantly attacking our faith. That, that bugs me. It's hard having that knowledge in my mind. And some of the things that I have to deal with on a daily basis, the emails I get, the phone calls I get, the texts I get um, about these type things kind of messes with me because, I mean, it's not just the world. It's not just politics that are attacking our faith. It's the schools. And if you're a teacher, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dissing you. Listen, there's a lot of great teachers in public schools, and I praise God for each one of them, and we need more of them. We need people who are willing to teach in public schools and stand for what's right. So I'm in no way dissing people who are teachers. I have family to teach. What I am saying is that they have to fight against the fray if they're going to stand for what's right in their position. Just like anyone else has to do the same thing. Like, here's some examples of things that have been taught and things that people have run across that they come to me about that just distresses me. Uh, they're teaching kids right now that they're just highly evolved animals instead of God's creative masterpiece. They're just highly evolved animals. And they wonder why there's violence and turmoil in our schools and in our colleges. How long do you have to tell kids and teach kids that they're animals before you're not shocked that they act like animals? If you tell kids you're nothing but an evolved animal, do you really have the right to judge them when they act like an animal? Right? Think about this. Remember, evolution teaches natural selection and survival of the fittest. Right? That's how you ensure that there's a strong, you know, a strong uh, of people moving forward. That we're going to weed out the weakness. Okay? So if, if that beloved doctrine of evolution is so true, shouldn't we consider the violence of natural selection and natural and necessary for people to evolve? It, we like that doctrine until we have to apply that doctrine. So it, that really bothers me. Now they're teaching kids that good and bad are relative. Doing that can have really, really serious consequences. I mean, after all, if morality is relative, that would mean that right and wrong is determined by each individual only relative to their personal situation. So basically what they're saying is, Dave can say, that's wrong for me. And I can go, okay, well, you're okay to feel that's wrong for you. It's not wrong for me. This is wrong for me. Oh, you don't have to think that. See, it's, 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 the standard just keeps changing. If there's, if there's not a definite standard of right and wrong, we are in trouble. And that's what's being taught right now. It really, really bothers me. So by that doctrine, no one can say what right and wrong actually even looks like. So why are we shocked that everything's going crazy? We are steering our kids in foolishness. And that's a whole other sermon. I'm not going to chase that too much. But I'm just saying, I get what he was saying. Now, 1 Corinthians 7, 29. He says, but let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus on their marriage. Now, hold on a second before you start elbowing each other. All right, verse 30. Those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or by their joy or by their possessions. Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them for the world as we know it will soon pass away. This is really powerful. So in verses 29 through 31, he's just cautioning them not to allow their circumstances to consume and distract them. And have you noticed this? That by the society we live in, everything you do, they want you to be consumed with it. They don't want it to be like, even, you know, sports with kids. Some parents, it becomes their life. 
your kids' sports. Or, you know, work becomes your life because you're going to work really hard now and ignore your family and hopefully you'll have a great retirement and enjoy them then if that works for you. You know, nothing is, is, is sold as just something you do well but put after God. It's all sold as it's got to be priority. So Paul was saying here, regardless of your marital or your financial or your emotional state, just stay focused on God. Okay, don't, don't let anything take your focus off God. Being married isn't a sin unless you obsess over your spouse more than God. Now, that may sound funny to a lot of you, but but there's a lot of people that I've met whose spouses are the biggest distraction in their life, spiritually. I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm just saying there are some people that that's the case. And God's not pleased with that. He's saying, play your role as a spouse, but make sure that God is number one. Don't allow yourself to drift off that. That's what he was trying to say. Right? And that's why it's so important to make sure that you find a spouse, now listen to me, that loves God more than you. You want to find somebody that loves God more than you. Because the husband and the wife that's in a relationship should always make God number one and their spouse number two. And people say, what about my children? Number three. People get so mad when I say that. But the truth is, and I've said this before, love your children. You're to protect them. They're a gift from God. But at 18, they're probably leaving. They're probably leaving. Right? And when they leave, the guy you've been sitting across the table from ignoring for years, or the woman you've been ignoring, it's just you two carrying each other across that table. That should be your most important relationship after God, than children. Because, listen, when you're second only to God with your spouse, you're going to have a, a more powerful bond than most married people. When you both agree on one thing, God, I love God more than you. But the only thing I love more than you is God. You're going to find a relationship that's more potent and more powerful because God blesses that. He's going to bless that relationship and protect it. Now, also, having material things is not a sin. And I think sometimes Christians do a really bad job with this. A lot of times we preach like if someone is successful that they're awful and not focused on And that's just ridiculous. You know, Abraham, by our standards, was probably a billionaire by our standards. You don't hear anybody saying Abraham was a sinner for being successful. There's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with having material things. As long as you don't obsess, and you're going to find this is, a, this is true in every situation, but as long as you don't obsess over those material things and start to uh, focus more on them than God. Right? If you listen to the world, the only way you're deemed successful is you finish with a lot of stuff. You know, parents, when my daughter came to me about the guys they were about to get serious with. I talk to friends and they always say, well, I want to know what you're going to go to college for. Are you going to be able to make a good living with my daughter? What's your drive? What's his parents like? And you know what my questions always are? Is he a Christian? First question. I don't care what color, ethnicity, I don't care what where, it, where they're from. If they're a, a believer and love my daughter second to God, I want them to be blessed. That's who I want them to be with. The money and all that other stuff will figure itself out. Well, as long as they're not lazy. If they're lazy, we got to have thoughts. But the rest of that will figure itself out. The most important thing is they love God. Right? It's really, really important. But here's the thing. The world wants you to be distracted by things because you never get satisfied with things. Because things always need upgrades. Have you notice that? There's nothing you can possess that doesn't age and doesn't corrode. There's nothing you can possess like that. I mean, we obsess over our homes. Have you ever looked in an old neighborhood where houses are falling apart and they're like 200-year-old houses 
There's a lot of them in this area. And you look at them and you think, sheesh, what a dump. But you know, 200 years ago, that was someone's cat. 200 years ago, they were worried about making sure the lawn was cut where the lines went a certain way. Okay, does anybody else do that? Just me. Never mind. At one time, they were making sure that everything was painted and the hedges were kept and everything was clean. That was, that was how it was at one time. But time keeps moving forward. And those things that mean so much now that you're probably fighting with your wife over, when are you going to finish the back porch? Why don't you do something? You know, <laughs> that battle, not that I've ever had it, but that battle was probably happening in that tore down house, that run down house. But time has robbed it of its value. Imagine how sad if those people come back and put, that, put all their time into that home and they see what's become of it. They might realize how important those types of things are. You can have a car. How many people here love classic cars? I'm not going to lie. I do. If that's a sin, I'm sinning. Okay. But I've seen, I had a friend of mine who had a, a 1970 Super Sport Chevelle four-speed. Beautiful. Beautiful. Positive tractor in 396. I'm telling you stuff you probably don't even know. But anyway, I liked it a lot. And every time he drove it, it had to be perfect, first of all. No wind. No dust. No rain. And this car had the horsepower to smoke it at 55. You could, you know, downshift it and burn the tires, but he drove it like a 90-year-old woman. And then when he got home, he got a rag, I'm not joking, and cleaned the underbox. Cleaned the wheel wells out. How many people have ever cleaned your wheel wells out in your underbox? Yeah, neither. Right? And one day I, I came home, and I came to his place, and he had a, a new Jeep sitting out there. And I said, what's with the Jeep? He goes, hey, it's just sick to death of being worried about that car. He said, I sold it and bought this Jeep and I'm going to beat on it. <laughs> That's what he told me. He just felt free because he finally realized things don't hold their value like we think they do. Okay? Eventually those things can become a burden. This is what he was talking about. Right? But putting all your faith in, in pursuing things is just a fool's errand. Because it's never-ending. It always needs upgraded. You always need something else. And that's what the devil did by design. He wants us to never be satisfied. Because people who are discontented generally don't have a strong walk of life. Because they're only focused on getting what they want. Not doing what God Okay? Now, I know that's a lot, but it's true. Notice he mentioned having joy over worldly things. It's not a sin to have joy over worldly things as long as it doesn't distract you. For example, it's okay... To have joy in things like hunting and fishing and ships, you know, and like shopping and uh, and you know boating, whatever, whatever those you know your hobbies may be, sports for those crazy people who like sports. But um, those hobbies are fine as long as they don't start possessing you. As long as you don't get consumed with them, because when you become consumed with those type things, the consequences start. I've known people, good people, who just got obsessed with golf, got obsessed with hunting, got obsessed with working all the time. And the next thing you know, church starts fading away. Then I don't really have time to read anymore. Then when's the last time you prayed? Well, God knows that I have to, you know, build a future for my family. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll pray before I eat. That's what starts happening. That's the consequences because those things that you have joy in are taking over you. And then he mentioned the sorrows of the world. And the same thing, you don't want to let the sorrows of this world consume you. Because remember, it's just temporary. For example, I don't know if you've ever known someone who's lost a job or lost a very important relationship and it consumes them. The, the sorrow just consumes them and the sorrow turns into anger and bitterness. You ever see that? 
And then once it turns to anger and to bitterness, they start fading away from the things they once did, like going to church, reading their Bible, you know, staying close to God. And the anger starts trying to teach them to look for people to blame and be mad at instead. That's what the world's sorrow does. The world's sorrow is, it's normal to have sorrow in your life, but when you let it take you over, eventually you'll see people getting mad at God, getting mad at church, getting mad at Christians, getting mad at family members, because that sorrow is overtaken them and they're trying to find a way to get out of it, so they start blaming other people. So, I mean, Paul was basically saying about all those things, don't let those things possess you and you'll be fine. Now, let's look at 731 again. He said, those who use the things of the world should become a uh, should not become attached to them, for this world, as we know it, will soon pass away. Okay, Paul was talking about, he wasn't talking about people who want to have nice things. He was just saying people who relentlessly pursue worldly things that consumes them, he's saying you're being consumed by stuff that's going to rot, stuff that's going to rust, and stuff that the government can take away from you in the bat of an eye. People, I hate to tell you this, I don't care how financially secure you think you are, the government can take it from you. You want something they can't take? It's the love you have for your family and the love you have for God. They can never take that from you. That should be the most important thing you have. But anything else you got, they can take it. Trust me. So this is just his way of reminding them, listen, all these things are worldly and they're temporary. Don't make them a priority. Now next, uh, he warns his readers about developing divided interests. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35. He says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how he can please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married, talking about widows or unmarried people, uh, can be devoted to the Lord uh, and holy in body and in one spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm not saying this for your benefit, or I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you, but I want you to I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with a few with as few distractions as possible. And that's really the thesis of that whole statement there is I want you uh, to really make sure what you're doing is going to benefit you and draw you close to God. So he wasn't saying I want you to understand Paul wasn't saying it was impossible to have a God focused marriage. I've heard people ask me that. That's not what he was saying. He's saying it's just a lot easier to be focused on God when you don't have anybody else to think about. That's all he was saying, okay? Because when you don't, when you're not married, you don't have to worry about taking care of more than just you. You can focus on God more. But on the other hand, there is a way to be married and to have a God-focused relationship. It is possible. I've seen it, right? And how do you do that? By making a commitment to God as a couple. One of you doing it isn't enough. As a couple, making a commitment to God. This means that you commit to hold each other accountable with your faith. You commit to, to, you know, encouraging each other to prioritize God as number one in your marriage. If you can do that, then you will have a strong marriage. Because the only thing stronger than a Christian marriage uh, and a loving Christian marriage is a marriage where both husband and wife are sold out to God. Those marriages last. They last and they're strong. Now, 7, 36, and 38, this is, there's supposed to be some controversy over this. I don't get it. And I think the Greek clears it up. We'll take a look at that. First Corinthians seven thirty six. But if a man thinks that he's treating his fiance improperly, he will inevitably give into his passion. Let him marry her as he wishes. It is not a sin. But if he has decided firmly not to marry, and there is no urgency, he, and uh, and he can control his passion, he does well not to marry. So the person who marries his fiance does well, and the person who doesn't marry does even better. Okay, now. 
these are kind of difficult because some of your Bibles may have said that totally different. I actually, this is where I think the New Living Translation actually took uh, a more positive step on translating than, new, than the, new, uh, the New American Standard did. Because the reason this is so difficult is the way it's constructed in the Greek. And I'll explain that to you. The words a man in the beginning of that sentence can refer to two totally different things. And context has to determine which one it is. Okay, it can refer to a father of a bride deciding whether he's going to allow his older daughter to be married or not. It can be talking about that. Or it can be talking about a fiancé of an older woman who is struggling to remain celibate and trying to decide whether he should be married. That is what the, a man, that word a man in the Greek could actually mean one or the other. Now, the reason I say the woman in question here is older is because in the Greek, there's something added that you don't see in a lot of texts. In the Greek, it actually adds the, the phrase, past her prime, when it describes this woman. Past her prime. I'm not touching that with a ten-foot pole. But she's talking about a woman who was seasoned and still not married. We'll call it that. And still not married. Okay, so it's saying past her prime. Right, that's, that's how we know it was an older, unmarried woman that's being discussed here. Okay, now, which interpretation is more accurate? Well, let's look at that. If, if the interpretation is about a daughter uh, and her father trying to decide uh, if she should marry, then it would be talking about the rights of a father in prearranged marriages, which is very normal back then. And believe it or not, prearranged marriages have a great deal of success, and I don't know why, because I think it's weird. But they do. Here's the thing. The father had the right, if he saw something he didn't like, to say, oh, this is over. I'm not doing that. He saw that the person who was supposed to marry him turned away from God and now had become a pagan. He had the right to say, oh no, I'm not going to do that. That's what it would be talking about. And, this, and if that were the case, Paul would be saying that, you know, if he feels it's okay for her to marry and allows it, great. If he doesn't, he has every right to stop it. Because that's what it be, would be meaning. Either way, it wouldn't be a sin. But if the interpretation about the fiancé is correct, it means something totally, totally different. Okay, in the Greek, let her marry, the phrase let her marry is the word gomeo, and it's plural, and this is really important, okay, because gomeo is plural, it would better translate let them marry. Let them marry would be talking about the two getting married. Not let her marry, that would be the father saying, I'm going to let her get married. In the Greek, it's plural, it says let them marry. So the plurality of this word tells us that the fiancé interpretation is the correct interpretation. And I'm really proud of the New Living Translation for going ahead and boldly taking that next step. Because that's really the only thing the Greek will support. So what Paul was saying here was, is if the fiancé of an older woman, a seasoned woman we will say, feels like he can't control his sexual desires for that older woman that he's betrothed to, he should go ahead and marry her. It's not a sin. That's what he was saying. But he also said that if you are able to control your desires, it's even better if you can stay single and just focus on God. So I don't really understand why there's a lot of controversy there. If you take that to the Greek, it's really plain. It has to be the fiancé explanation because of the plural use of that word. So everybody stay with me on that? Would you tell me if you did? Okay, good. Okay, so finally, Paul closes out this section with, with the final lesson for the widow. Uh, verse 7, 39 and 40. 39 and 40, I actually could have added into a message, uh, last week's message. It says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but only if he loves the Lord. Okay, underscore that in your Bible. That means you can't marry unbelievers if you want to be right with God. Okay? 
I didn't write it. He did. Verse 40. But in my opinion, it would be better for her to stay single, and I think I'm giving you counsel from God's Spirit when I say this. What he's saying is, it's, in, in my opinion, it's probably a bad translation. It's more like, from my experience, if you can handle not getting married here, it's probably better because seeing what we're going through right now, we need more people just focused on God. He wasn't telling them it was bad to remarry. That's not what he was saying. Again, so Paul was just saying that if you're widowed, you have the right to remarry as long as you're marrying the Lord. And you have the right to not remarry, and God will bless that too. The biggest thing this whole message teaches, the biggest thing we've got to pull from this entire message, is that whatever you do in your life, apart from God, can't be bigger than God in your life. It can't be. Sports can't be more important to you than God. Music can't be more important to you than God. Your children can't be more important to you than God. And I have seen that happen. Okay? That's another sermon, but I've seen that happen. Right? Your friendships, your relationships can't be more important than God. Your work life can't be more important than God. Because listen, right now it may seem like God doesn't mind that you're ignoring Him, but the day will come when you will answer for every time you did. And you'll see how important it was. And remember this, if you do choose to get married and have a family, God will hold you responsible for making sure that the children that come out of that marriage and the couple that form, the family that form the moment you get married, you become a family. God expects you to be responsible enough to keep that unit focused on Him. He wants you to keep your children focused on Him. He wants you to show your your children God's love and God's discipline. Listen, if we would get back to that, things would be a lot different right now. So basically, the, the, the theme of this entire message is whatever you do, consider the consequences spiritually. If what you're about to do is going to pull you away from God, don't do it. But if what you're going to do allows you the freedom to be closer to God than you ever have, go ahead. Just make sure you consider it before you do it. That's the, that's the message you're trying to send you. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you to go to peace. Start your head. Now, if this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. We don't invite people down or anything like that. We just ask you to bow your head, just close your eyes. We just want to pray for you. If you're not sure where you stand with God or you just want prayer, I don't need to know why. I want to pray for you. Make eye contact and just look right back in. Let's just keep it. Let's keep it. Listen, if you're watching and listening online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But believers, these are a lot of very applicable lessons we're learning. These lessons were written to make a church more effective for God. So why would, wouldn't it work for us? It will. We need to focus on this. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all this you. I thank you for your love and your compassion. I thank you especially for your grace. Because without your grace, we would be doing None of us can be good enough. None of us can be sinful. None of us have anything to offer in exchange for the gift of eternal life. Because none of us can do anything greater than what Jesus did. Sacrificially dying innocently to pay the sin that you didn't know and couldn't have. So God, we just pray today that people stop trying to earn it. We just want people to realize that the way you died with your arms stretched out is how you still stay. And if they can believe that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee their eternal life and the way promises, they'll have And if someone makes that decision today, I pray they contact us, but for those of us who are believers, there is no shortage of distractions. Every day, as soon as we get out of bed, the distractions start. Give us the faith to turn away from the things that won't matter a hundred years from now. And to focus more on what will matter for eternity next year. Let us